0: Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void required prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: Talk Recorded live. Good evening, everybody. It is Saturday, October 15th, 2016. And we are here tonight again with Mr. Monty Montgomery. And for those of you that are new that may not know who Monty is, Monty is also an author. He wrote a book that is well known as The Errant Sovereign's Handbook, where he spills the beans on the system and how it works and how you can get around it. And so we don't have that at the site yet, but we're working on it. So for right now, anyway, um Monty, how you doing?
2: I'm doing fine.
1: Alrighty. So you have something you want to talk to us about tonight?
2: Well, the first thing is I wanna point out to everybody that my primary purpose in the in the this these talks is to obtain in the listeners an accurate Comprehension of what they're dealing with, and teaching them how to use that deadly weapon situated between their ears. Um, as far as the document temp- document templates that I provide through you, they're intended to keep the heat off of people until they can come up to speed with what the rules of the game really are.
3: I thought that might need to be said. Well said. Um okay,
2: do I have a volunteer to be um <laughs> a scholar today?
1: Um if you do, it's going to be our callers from California or me. Oh, Okay. Uh, you folks from California that uh spoke with earlier, would you like to volunteer to participate in a what would you call this, a game or a exercise?
2: Well, no,
1: it's it's a back and forth thing. Oh well, sure, Cool. Well thank you for volunteering. We have our scholar.
2: Alrighty. Didn't uh, call it worse.
3: <laughs>
2: well in this game I'm the preceptor and you are the scholar.
3: Okay.
2: You know where that you know where that comes from, don't you? No. Well back when the educational system in this country consisted mostly one room schoolhouses. Um, that's what the teacher was called was the preceptor, and the pupils were called scholars.
3: I did not know that. Learn something new every day.
2: Yeah. Um, fascinating, isn't it? When you ha- when that happens. <laughs>
3: Yay. Yeah. Yeah.
2: <laughs> okay. <clears throat> um, have you read your constitution? I have. All right. Now, um, one of those small things. I mean, the Constitution has a lot of things in it that most people uh, gloss over. They fail to to take note of. And one of those I'm going to bring up tonight. In Article One, Section Two, Clause Two, it says that no person shall be a representative who shall not have attained to the age of 25 years and been seven years a citizen, that is a capital C, on the citizen of the United States, and who shall not, now here's the part that people don't pick up on, most people, and who shall not, when
3: elected, be an inhabitant of the state which he shall be chosen. The same requirement is in Article 1, Section 3, Clause 3 for Senators,
2: and it ends off by saying, Who shall not, when elected, be an inhabitant of that state for which he shall be chosen?
3: Why do you think they put that in there? I don't know. Who's there, Who's my uh, scholar from California? I don't know, but they left.
2: Oh, really? Yeah. You scared them. Oh. (laughs) Where's Genevieve? She's not afraid of anything. I know. (laughs)
1: Genevieve,
2: (laughs) I'm I'm going to three-way call her in here pretty soon. Yeah. Okay.
0: Yeah,
2: well, since we don't have any other volunteers, the reason I put that in there, um, and I should point out that In the Constitution, the term citizen, with two or three exceptions, the term citizen is always uh, styled as a proper noun, meaning it's capitalized, as is the term representative, senator, and president, and various other proper nouns. I believe our scholar is back. Hello. Okay. Yes.
3: I disconnected and I had to go find the number again.
2: <laughs> oh okay. Um, so did you follow that last little bit?
3: No, I just got back online. On the oh phone. okay.
2: Okay. Um, <clears throat> oh,
3: they yeah. use those.
2: Yeah, they use those words as proper nouns for a reason. Um, as far as citizen, representative, senator, and president, and such terms as that, um, a proper noun is one of the ways you identify a. a An official office. So when they use the term citizen with a capital C, that is a political office.
3: Um, Okay, having pointed that out, I'm going to go back to what we were talking about. Um,
2: Oh, and it should be noted that the term citizen does not appear anywhere in the Declaration of Independence, and it does not appear anywhere in the Bill of Rights.
3: It only appears in the Constitution. Um, In the other, and that's a small c, isn't it?
2: No, the the word "citizen," small or large c, does not appear anywhere in the Declaration of Independence or in the Bill of Rights. What's referred to there are people.
3: In the Constitution, is it capitalized?
2: Um. In most instances, instances, it is. There's two or three exceptions where it's a small c, but it's not used in the con- in the context of a proper noun, so they didn't capitalize it. Um, <clears throat> anyway, going back to this question of why would, as soon as you're elected as a representative or a senator, uh, why would you no longer be an inhabitant of the state that elected you?
3: Uh know, because you're then a federal citizen
2: or something to that effect? well that you could introduce that aspect, but the main reason you have to remember we're talking about a document that was written at the very beginning
1: okay,
2: okay? Um, This is a document that created this government, and you can think of it in in the same terms as a the articles of of or the articles of incorporation. For a corporation, it is the instrument that brought the entity into existence.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So, what they meant by that, uh, because inhabitants is mentioned once in the Declaration of Independence, and it was in the grievances against the king, um, where he said they said for quartering large bodies of armed troops among us, for protecting them by a mock trial from punishment for any murders which they should commit on the inhabitants of these states. And again, the word inhabitants was a capital as a proper noun. Um, An inhabitant,
3: if you do the research on this, an inhabitant is basically equivalent to a tenant. You have to remember, all the colonies were as far as the land was concerned,
2: were grants either directly from the crown or through corporations that held their charter at the pleasure of the crown. So the people the people that were in the colonies in this country at that time um, were
3: inhabitants on land that belonged to somebody else. And it's pretty much the same way today, <laughs> right? you, you could very
2: easily say that. Yes. Now, um, the when they said this in the in the Constitution, shall not be um, an inhabitant of the state that elected them. What they're saying is that they no longer
3: landed. They're no longer connected to the soil. Now, um, do I need to further clarify that, or is that pretty well covered for you? Yeah, maybe a little clarification.
2: What would you like clarifying?
3: Um, No longer an inhabitant.
2: Um, well, an inhabitant is not necessarily the same thing as a resident. And residency is not necessarily the same thing as domicile. They have different meanings.
3: Okay. So
2: you could be a resident, um, but domicile you can have residences all over the world. But you can only have one domicile, which is also a resident uh, residence. It's a domicile where you can be served processed reliably.
3: By anyone that's a, that is the distinction uh,
2: now, as you started to point out there u s citizenship subjects you to the exclusive jurisdiction clause of article I, section eight, clause seventeen, in other words, it
3: places you at the complete mercy of Congress and its political edicts. Okay. okay. That's Article One Clause what? Clause uh, eight? Section eight, sec section
2: eight, clause seventeen. It's okay. the exclusive uh exclusive clause, exclusive jurisdiction. Now <clears throat> oh, uh I'm gonna wrap up one more thing here on this other deal. In Article two, sections two, three, and five Uh, this addresses the president. No mention is made of inhabitant, but it does say he has to be a resident. And it's interesting to note that they're still following, despite the amendment that uh, created the direct election thing uh, from the people, uh, they're still following the original design, which was the electors choose the president far as the people's vote meaning anything on choice of president, that's just a dog and pony show. They're still following the original Constitution. The Electoral College picks the president, period. But it's interesting to note in the Constitution, it says that at least uh, there's two electors from each state that go to participate in the Electoral College on president, one of whom cannot be an inhabitant of the state, That he's Um, chosen from. So we're back to that same thing again. He's not connected with the soil.
1: So does that mean that he's a renter? Martin? So would that mean that that person is a renter?
2: Well, he's not connected with the soil anymore. Not in any legal sense.
3: Hmm. Okay. All right.
2: Now, um, Citizen and I'm referring to primarily the capital C citizen, proper noun, is designed or is uh, defined as one who is from. and This is straight out of a law dictionary, by the way. One, one who is, I think it was Beauvais, one who is from the city, not a city, but one who is from the city, as distinguished from one
3: who is from the country. To put that into perspective, um,
2: you need to be aware that the uh, Vatican City
3: is not part of Rome and it's not part of Italy. And back when in the Roman Empire,
2: Rome was not a country, it was a city.
3: The city of London is not part of England. Mm. The city
2: of Washington, District of Columbia, is not part of the Union of American States.
0: I knew that.
2: Okay. Do you know what Columbia means? No. Named after Columbus. No. District of Columbia, the word Columbia, was uh, when they wrote this, was uh, taken from a 17th century poem where the word Columbia was
3: used and it meant America. District of America. Yeah. The global headquarters
2: for the uh, bar, and I hesitate to say the word association because the bar is the bar, uh, the global headquarters for the bar is the Inns
3: of Court within the City of London, which is not part of England. What was the name of it? Bar.
0: Uh, it's where?
3: BAR.
2: It's an acronym.
0: Uh, it yeah, Where's
2: the it, it, it stands for British Accreditation Registry. Okay and it's tied in with Oxford, it's tied in with their whole educational system, um, but it's primarily tied in with the legal profession. Um, and it, it traces, you have the uh, outer court, middle court, inner court, on the ends of court, and it, that those tie into the...
3: Uh, uh, <laughs> I blanked on it. Um Oh, Dad, help me out here. What, what did I say they tie into
2: <laughs> The ends of court.
1: What was the question again?
3: They tie into the, um, um, for some reason it's just escaping me, um, parent organization for the hospitalers. The Hospitallers? Yes. You mean the
1: Masons?
2: No. Oh. Talking about Crusades era.
3: Oh. Uh,
1: that, that secret group you mean? Knights Templar. That's it. I was going to say that. Okay. <laughs> um mm.
2: All right. So, somebody I think asked last week, "What do you say if somebody asks if you're a U.S. citizen?" And I'm going to give you a story about that too. Um, if you are asked if you are a U.S. citizen, you could
3: try saying, "I'm a Native American, born and raised on the soil thereof." A Native American is not to be confused with American Indian. As
2: pointed out by American Indian actor and scholar Russell Means, anyone born in this country is a Native American. Native American is a matter of
3: geography. American Indian is a matter of antecedent bloodline. Okay? Did you say that once again? Pardon?
0: Could you say that again?
3: Which part? The definition of what you say, if you ask if you're a U.S. citizen?
2: Um, Well, one thing you could say is I'm a Native American, born and raised on the soil thereof. Or another way you could answer the question, uh, are you a U.S. citizen, is you could say I was born an Oregonian or a Wisconsinite or an Idahoan or a Californian or whatever. And then you could uh, follow that with, what is the enabling authority which empowers you or anyone else to compel my acceptance of U.S. citizenship? And there is a court case on that, by the way. Or which empowers you or anyone else to compel me to even answer that question.
3: Are you attempting to force me to make a political choice? And there is no enabling authority.
2: So, um... The case I mentioned, her referred to, there was a couple of um, black Americans, um, I don't remember now, I think they're in the Chicago area. They were convicted for murder. Basically, they confessed to it. And they put it in an appeal to the Supreme Court. And their ba- the basis for their argument was that they were convicted um, as U.S. citizens. And there was, their argument was, there is, even at the time of the 14th Amendment, there was no enabling authority which empowered the United States government to force citizenship on anyone, including blacks, um, against their will.
3: And the Supreme Court agreed with them and released them. Oh. Okay? So because um, citizenship is a political choice. Nobody can force you to do that. Is that fairly clear? uh uh-huh. Okay, good. Um, let's see. Now, the Supreme Court, I'm going to go back to the Constitution, Article 3, and it talks about the judicial power. I'll be there in a minute. Okay. Okay the judicial power
2: of the United States shall be vested in one Supreme Court and in such inferior courts as the Congress may from time to time ordain and
3: establish. Now, you drop down to Section 2 and it says that the judicial power shall extend to
2: all cases in law and equity arising under this
3: Constitution, etc., Um, and it talks it it extends to um, case controversies between a state or the citizens thereof and foreign states citizens, and subjects. All right.
2: After they listed off all this stuff, it says in in Clause 2, remember, we're still talking about how far the judicial power extends on the federal level. In all cases affecting ambassadors, other public ministers, and consuls, comma, and in tho- and those in which a state shall be a party.
3: So if you're going to sue the state, you have to sue them in the Supreme Court. I don't know if anybody was aware of that or not. Huh. Wait
1: a minute.
0: Uh,
1: Hold it. Say that again. So if we if we want to sue the state, we have to do it in the Supreme Court? Of course you do.
3: I seem to remember that you needed their permission, the state's permission, to sue them. Well, it has to do
2: with your relationship with the state. We're going to get yeah. into that in a minute. Okay. As I previously mentioned, I think last week, the week before, um, over 80% of the statutes, state and federal, are categorically classified as political code. Now, here's one of those situations where I don't think anybody ever put the proper question before the Supreme Court. If the Supreme Court maintains, and that's they do maintain that, that the judicial power uh, courts are not, or uh, the judicial Courts are not empowered to entertain or decide political issues under the separation of powers doctrine. Now, on the state level, most of your state constitution expressly separates the powers, most of them. But at the federal level, it's simply a doctrine. It's not spelled out in the constitution. Anyway, the question I would put in front of the Supreme Court is that if they're going to maintain that position that they can't. They're going to uh, not decide what they consider political issues. Um, For example, treason is a political crime. It's not tried by the courts. It's tried by Congress or by the Senate. At any rate, the question I would put before the Supreme Court, if they're going to maintain that position, is that not also a breach, or let's see, then why is it the judicial power operates under legislative power rules instead of under its own rules?
3: Is that not also a breach of the separation of powers, doctrine? Sounds like it. Okay. Now, again, you have to be careful how you put those questions
2: before the court because I I can almost envision how they'd come back to that and answer. Um, And it always falls back on the people. One of my early mentors told me, he said, every time you point the finger at somebody or something else, you got three more fingers pointing back at you. Yeah,
3: absolutely.
2: Okay? So the problem is not the government, the problem is the people. Um because the government simply reflects where the people are. Oh, boy. Like a
3: mirror. Okay? And,
2: you know, I've I discussed this at some length in the handbooks, so uh, anybody that hasn't read the handbooks yet, I encourage you to read them better if you want to understand this.
3: <clears throat>
2: okay, now we're going to get back to something else we were talking about. Um, and it, it ties in with citizenship uh, it ties in with whether you are landed or not. And uh, as far as a Lodial title, that was done away with
3: with the Magna Carta. So, what it changed to, the Magna Carta took away a Lodial title from the king.
2: So what it what they created in its place was title and fee simple, which is the highest form of title at the time, which is what devolved onto the barons. They were the landlords and they comprised the House of Lords in England um, they are, they were landed okay um, now in this country when you the under the Homestead Act or the Mining Act or various other acts, when a land patent was issued, the United States government released all right, title, and interest to the property. And the courts have maintained that that's the highest form of title in this country. Um, <clears throat> now, the problem is, too many people that got their land
3: patents, the first thing they did was run down and record it with the county. In other words, they registered their land with the county. So doesn't that kind of negate
2: it? Pardon?
4: Doesn't that kind of negate it?
2: Uh, Yes, it does, because when when you look at the term registration, it's defined as voluntarily uh, giving over your property, whether that's intangible or intangible, giving over your property to the state
3: for the purpose of taxation and regulation. So, I mean, there's countless examples of that.
2: Um, When you uh, register your land patent with the county, you just uh, turned your property over. And the county, um, well, by definition, when you register something with the state or the county, you're voluntarily offering your property to the state for taxation and regulation purposes. Now, um, you're... When you do that, you're giving the state, or or the state through the county, an equitable and proprietary interest in that property, and again, whether the property is tangible or intangible, it doesn't matter, and that property is added to the state's asset inventory for raising revenue through bonds and similar indenture mechanisms.
3: So that would go for our person, too, right? All right. Give me that again, please. That would go. That would. That would. That would be for a person, also. Absolutely. Um, mm,
2: uh, I think we talked about this last week. Is uh, uh, if they don't have the authority through the Constitution, in most cases they don't. They have to get it directly from you. Under contract law. And that's why they want your signature on so many documents, because
3: they want you to authorize them to do something the Constitution does not authorize them to do. Contract law supersedes constitutional law. And contract law comes through living people. And your signature is evidence of your authorization
2: or your consent. The only way you can get out of one of these contracts, because most people today have got their signature scattered out there on so many different documents and papers, it's not hard to prove that they are not sovereign. It's not hard to prove that they are a U.S. citizen, Um, because they signed documents that said they were. Um, The The one single way out of that, and it's only good for one time, and that is a claim of deceit or fraud, misrepresentation. You can only use that once, because if you go back into another contract with these people a second time after you've used used the first thing to get out of it, um, they can invalidate your claim, because your first claim, You got out because you said it was fraud. Okay, fine. You got out of it. You step back into it. You're doing that knowing that it's fraud.
3: Yeah.
2: Okay? So you got
3: one shot at getting clear of this system on the basis of fraud. So, um, anyway, I kind of I went through this a lot faster than I
2: thought I might. Okay. Uh, one of the things I was going to bring up is: Has anybody been following the, that uh, Malheur Wildlife Refuge Bundy case? Not really.
4: No, I haven't. I haven't
2: followed it really.
1: I think uh, you have.
2: That has to do. Uh, that case has to do with lands again, and there. Uh one of the people involved is a woman by the name of what's her name. Ammon Bundy is one of the uh Shauna Cox. Shauna
3: Cox is uh one of the defendants. And uh it's interesting in her report from October third through
2: October seventh. The, uh, it's a fairly lengthy one, but
3: i I zeroed in on the pertinent parts. And she said it, it is a political
2: trial that isn't supposed to be a political trial. That's actually uh, pretty accurate. It is purported to be a criminal trial, but all of the underlying issues which, which led to the occupation of the refuge
3: are all political. And she said there are seven um, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen people
2: um they're awaiting trial at a later date, sometime in February. And she said there are eleven defendants, eleven other defendants who have pled guilty to a lesser charge. In order to avoid
3: harsher punishments. Okay. Um, I should think that that would su- that would tell anyone of common sensibility
2: that justice in this country is now for sale.
3: Yeah. You,
2: you can barter a better deal. That's coercion. <laughs> Um, okay, another one she said was, um, every aspect of it is tightly controlled and regulated by the judge from the moment the jury enters the courtroom to the moment they leave. Well, that tells you right there it's an admiralty court because, um, the judge is making the decisions, not the jury. Uh, let's see, in order to eliminate a lot of what Judge Anna Brown likes to call cumulative evidence but what I and other observers believe is corroborating evidence, she has sustained almost 4,000 objections raised by federal prosecutors who want to keep as much exculpatory evidence out of the trial as they can. Can
3: you tell us what exculpatory means? Um, Evidence that tends to exonerate you. Well...
2: We can't have that. we got bombs to sell. Yeah, right. Now, the next thing she says, and here this is where it starts getting interesting, she said the judge ruled that no one could discuss the Constitution in her courtroom because only a lawyer is qualified to properly understand and explain it. (laughs) Since, Since she isn't about to do it herself, it isn't going to get done. And to be sure, she isn't going to let the defendant... And to be sure... She isn't going to let the defendant, uh, Bundy, read it and discuss it, period. After all, he isn't a lawyer. Not only did federal prosecutors object to the
3: Constitution being read in the courtroom, but they also objected to the Bible being read. Not only
1: is it an unconstitutional court, it's unholy, too
2: yeah there you go. Out of nearly four thousand objections raised by the prosecutors, about ninety nine percent of them have been sustained Then uh, Bundy asked if he could read from the Declaration of Independence,
3: and judge anna brown prohibited prohibited him from doing so. <clears throat> Um, the rest gets kind of into particulars of
2: the case. But, you know, I look at this and what I'm seeing,
3: um, first of all, most of these people are probably registered voters.
1: You mean the defendants? Yep. Okay.
2: Okay. Well, when they register to vote, They surrendered their property, their rights, secured by the Bill of Rights Constitution.
3: They surrendered it to majority rule as expressed through Congress. Okay. Is that dim, please? When you register to vote, uh huh,
2: you are subordinating Voluntarily subordinating your constitutionally secured rights, of which you have many, um, to the will of the majority as expressed through the legislature.
3: Um, So if the legislature enacts a bunch of codes, uh, including
2: the rules for the courts, um, that seem to run contrary
3: to your secured rights, you're registered to vote, you let you authorize them to do that. Okay. I mean, those rights, the Bill of Rights, was put there to protect you from the the majority. They're individual rights. Now, um... You know, life, liberty, pursuit of
2: happiness, there were just three. They said there were many, many more. Those are just three they enumerated in the Declaration um, as self evident truth that you don't even have to prove it. They demonstrate themselves. That's what a self evident truth is. So, yeah. but when you register to vote, you're volunteering your property, your rights are your property. They belong to you and they don't belong to anybody else. They belong to you exclusively. I have similar rights, but they don't belong to anybody else. They belong to me
3: exclusively. And it's up to you whether you want to waive them through registering to vote. Good thing I haven't. (laughs) There you go. Um, now,
2: as far as, uh, social security number, that's another problem that people encounter when they're trying to deal with this government. Uh, if you go to, I I don't even know if they do this. I think a lot of it's online now, but when you used to be able to go to the post office and get a passport application, Uh that's their form. And it says right on their form where you're supposed to put in a social security number that if you don't have a social security number, to put in nine digits of zero. Interesting. You know why?
3: Because that is a valid account number, meaning there is no number. Now, I also happen to know, um, this one's a little harder to
2: dig up the, page, the, the documentation on it, but I've known uh, one fellow at least who was had died on, in the hospital and then came back to life a short while thereafter, but he was dead long enough they pulled out a death certificate on him. Oh, my God. Then he came back to life, and um, they gave him a new number, because when he died, that canceled the old number, social security number. (laughs) When he came back, what they gave him was a social security number of nine digits of nine, and he said he knew of over 100 people that had that same number. And nine digits of nine means, it doesn't mean that there is no account number. What it means is you're dead, as far as the government's (laughs) concerned. And... I found that interesting because he was collecting Social Security.
3: So
1: what if, say, you want to open a bank account or a PayPal account, and you put in nine digits of nine instead of a social?
2: Um, well, I'd be careful with nine digits of nine. You could put in nine digits of zero, and nobody's going to argue that that isn't a valid account number because it's right on the passport application.
1: Oh. Hmm. Okay.
3: Guess where that goes? Secretary of State. Interesting. I don't think, I don't think anybody's going to argue with them. that. Um, um
2: I did promise to tell you another story. There was a Cuban woman. I know this through a friend of mine. Uh, this was a few years ago. There was a Cuban woman that was living in Florida. And she was a physician, um, and uh, I think I mentioned this to you, Chad, earlier. Um, she was already in the process, in the federal process, to get U.S. citizenship. and um, But she didn't want all of the liabilities that are attached to that. Oh, so, right, right, right. So she wanted to know how she could be a state citizen. So they basically um, told her, you're going to have to go in and tell them that you do not want to be a U.S. citizen. You want to be uh, Floridian or Floridodian or whatever the hell it's <laughs> called. Um, and this building was four stories high that they were in, and they bumped her up to the second floor she had to go through the go through all of it again they bumped her up to the third floor they she went through it all again and and she they bumped her all the way up to the fourth floor and uh where she finally um they they gave they complied with her request and they uh, admitted her as a, Florido- a Floridonian or whatever, Floridian, uh, Floridian uh, citizen. But then later on, she found out she could not practice as a physician unless she had a license, and she couldn't get the license unless she was a U.S. citizen. So she went down and applied for, um, or she couldn't do it without a Social Security number.
3: And, of course, you have to certify your U.S. citizen to get that. So basically, she went through all of that and then threw it away. Well, what could she have done to uh
1: to, um, um, engage in her
2: uh well no, the way the medical law, well the way the law reads um in her case is um she could still practice she just couldn't practice on u s citizens
3: huh.
1: Boy, they get you coming and going, don't they? Yes,
2: they do. But, again, um, you can't blame them. We're the, we're the ones at fault. We're the ones that get
0: suckered I in. I know.
2: It.
1: We're the ones okay. that, that, first of all, deny that this is happening, and then we throw ourselves on the system when it does happen. Right. By so, the way, yeah. guess who finally decided to join us?
2: Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Let me catch my breath. Are you ready? <laughs> if you were a woman, I'd say I'm always ready. I'm a man. but um. Yeah, let's not go there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, sweetheart,
1: I'm always ready. Yeah. <laughs> Genevieve Ness. <laughs>
4: Hello? Hello?
1: Hi. <laughs> oh, is that Bill Clinton? Hi <laughs> uh, hey there, sweetheart. What's your name? <laughs> Giggity.
4: No, that's your effing business.
1: <laughs> that doesn't sound like Slick Willie at all. <laughs> Slick Willie. By the way, uh, side note. Yeah, I saw this interview today with Alex Jones and Bill Clinton. It's one of Bill Clinton's first girlfriends. Uh She had known Bill since she was 11 and he was 13.
2: Yeah.
1: First time she met Hillary. uh, She got in the back of the car with him and she said she stank. (laughs) (laughs) Hillary (laughs) just stank. She smelled it. It was the worst smell she ever smelled. And Um, Alex Jones said, hold it, hold it. When have you and I talked before this? Well, well, we haven't. Why? Because I get the same story from Secret Service agents and others that know her that say that she stinks.
3: Right.
2: Did you already know that? Well, uh, you know where that comes from, don't you? No. Uh, her and Bill used to do a lot of drugs. Oh,
1: uh, well, Okay.
2: okay
3: and um, some of the drugs they did produced that effect. Huh.
4: Well, I knew a gal years ago who stank, and she didn't do a lot of drugs, and there was something to do with her hormones.
2: Well, the drugs affect hormones.
4: Oh, uh, well, but I, what I'm suggesting is that there is a possibility it wasn't. Just caused by the drugs. It could have just been something that happened. That's true. But they seem to be into drugs. So are they used to anyway?
2: And then, uh, uh, then again, maybe she just didn't take a bath very often. Yes, there, are, well, there are well, there are people like that. They just pile on the perfume and they don't take a bath very often. Well, this gal
1: kind of admitted that Bill was into the cocaine thing, so...
3: Yeah.
2: I wouldn't doubt it if Hillary was, too.
3: Yeah, they both both were. You have to remember, he was a Rhodes scholar. You know what Rhodes teaches? What? What? It teaches international insurance. It's pure admiralty. Uh. Well, Trump today is asking for a drug test before the next debate.
2: (laughs) Just saw that on the news a while ago. (laughs)
3: <laughs> I'd like to
4: I'd like to ask a follow up question to what you were talking about the woman um, the physician in Florida.
0: hmm
4: What if she hadn't, um, if she hadn't uh, applied for a license to practice medicine, what if she just done it? What if she just done medicine?
2: Well, that's what I was saying. In other words, the way the laws are, are set up and structured, Structured, she could have still uh, practiced medicine. She just couldn't do it on U.S. citizens.
4: But without without all the falderal of being a, herself being a U.S. citizen or even a, a, a Floridian, right? Couldn't she have just done it? And if she was, good, yes, people she could just... have
2: done. Yeah, she could have done it, but not on
3: U.S. citizens.
4: Because the corporation is claiming their employees, is that it? Hands off well, our employees?
2: When you're, um, well, when you're a U.S. citizen, you belong, you're like a GI. You're government issue, you
3: belong okay. to the government.
2: All
1: right. Uh, so what other questions do you have for us,
2: Genevieve?
4: Well, how did you know I had others, Tad? <laughs>
2: That's fine. I, I love the questions because I, li- I like the back and forth. So what's your next question?
4: Well, I'm going back to, uh, to other things that we've spoken of in the past. Okay. Uh, past calls. All
3: right. And
4: one of them is regarding the schedule of fees and charges. Uh-huh. Are there any actions like deregistering from the voter rolls that must be done before issuing that notice of schedule of fees and charges.
2: Um I would recommend it. Um and for the other listeners, you're drawing on that uh from the handbook that tells you how to withdraw from the voter registration.
4: Yes, which I followed by the way and did right. a couple mm-hmm. of years ago.
2: Right. Yay.
4: Yay. <laughs> Um, And then, after you have your schedule of fees and charges in place, and Uh after someone has taken you up on your offer, so to speak, Uh what is the collection process? How do you go about collecting?
1: You know, that might be suitable for a webinar for our members.
2: Um, I touch upon that one of the ways, anyway. I touch upon that in the handbooks. How you go about collecting? You know, it's a, along the lines of a common law lien. Well, you know, they don't mm-hmm. like they don't like acknowledging common law. Um, so the way we got around that is because if they, if they say a lot of these clerks have been instructed if they, if they see common law on a document, they're not to record it. Okay. Yeah. So the way to get around that is you say it's a lien by operation of law. And that means the same thing.
4: <laughs> oh, okay, I'll look for that in your volume 2. I think it would be in
2: um yeah, it's in one of them. <laughs> um
4: and then you spoke last week about uh at roadside uh, where you I think it was your Rodney Rodney King episode.
2: Your beat down. No, no, that that was a different in, there was a, those were different incidents.
4: Oh. Well, okay, so I do the wrong conclusion, but the point is you said you were on the your cell phone and you had already told them that they you did not give them permission to touch your body and, and they
3: didn't.
4: you and they didn't, yay, good for you and good for them, and you right. said that they you told your friend you you thought they were going to pirate your rig
2: they did.
4: And they did, according to your story last week. Now, my question is, was your rig a semi, or was it just a car, or just a truck, or what was your rig?
2: Uh, it was a half ton pickup with a camper shell on the back. Um, I got in the habit of saying rig because when I, I was raised by a great uncle who owned a truck line, and I was driving 18-wheelers before I was old enough to have a learner's permit. And I was doing wow. it better than most of his drivers. So, um, but I had a hell of an instructor. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so, you know, when I say a rig, uh, I just anything that moves down the highway to me is a rig. Uh, <laughs> but it was, was a muggy. pickup.
4: All right. Yeah, was it thinking.
2: was. It was a. It was a pickup. Okay.
4: Um. Okay, and then you also let's see. I got figure now, out now the
2: Rodney King thing that was an ambush. There were seven cops ambushed me.
4: this is because the locals kn- know who you are or knew who you were.
2: Well, no, the ambush occurred in um a an urban area. I'll decline to say which city and um why city- why yeah because uh I was standing on a soapbox doing essentially what I'm doing now. Oh, okay. And they didn't like it.
4: Oh God.
2: <laughs> so <laughs> uh,
3: <laughs>
2: anyway <laughs> The uh you know what and that was like, you know, fifteen or so years ago. The um and it's it's just gotten worse in the, primarily in the urban areas. Yeah. It's it's just gotten worse since then. Oh yeah. Um, and I would venture to say it we're at a point now in this country at in the, not in the rural areas but in the urban areas, we're at a point in this country now where, we're we're back to uh, Lexington Green and the uh, North Bridge of Concord. Seems so and doesn't And that's primarily because, um, the low IQ, um, the bad
3: training that these younger officers are receiving. They're, you know, they're, they're a product. I, I, you can't really blame them for that in
2: that regard because they're acting, um, according to how they were raised, how they were trained, how they were educated, which is uh, not the same as the way we were educated
3: earlier. Yeah. Okay?
4: No common core.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
4: Ooh.
1: I actually got a real education. Yeah. Right.
2: So what I try to do... um, you know, it's it's um, you know, kind of going back to that. I was I was being kind of flippant, but you know, that's how I would handle a traffic stop when I gave some of the examples, because I'm trying to engage their spirit of play. <clears throat> that's not going to work if you're dealing with a, a diehard bully behind a badge.
4: Well, one of the things that you you suggested was to, if you get pulled over by a cop. That you you put um a piece of paper with your name and address on your dashboard and just basically point to that am I correct in that you said that
2: well, yeah, you could do that, but you're you know once they have your name, they've got all they need, and well, then you're gonna get then you're gonna get tangled up in a court case et cetera et cetera et cetera um
4: and then and, you also suggested, Monty, that this is my question because you did say that and you've also suggested carrying a, a form or a contract right. in the glove box but not putting your name or signature on it until the cop has signed the contract with you. So I right. I was having a hard time understanding which one you think would be better.
0: Um,
2: the contract one is the better one because you're telling them, I'll do whatever you want me to do and say whatever you want me to say as soon as you contract with me. And the implication in that is that they're not under Article 6 oath. So you're going to bind them by contract, but they're not going to violate your rights, which in point of fact, they already have. Um, And they're going to give you permission to sue them if they do violate your rights. That's the essence of the contract. I can write that out of my head on a blank sheet of paper, but a lot of people, you know, aren't where I'm at, so I, that's why I generated a generic form, so they just fill in the blank. Because some cops, um, or at least one cop that I personally know of, asked to see the contract. So, uh, Did he sign it? I wasn't the driver. Oh. <laughs> <laughs>
4: Does that contract have a title?
2: Um... Yeah, it does. Um, let's
3: see. Pat, I sent that up to you. Um, okay, hold on. Uh,
1: okay. Table of titles, generic schedule of fees, charges, template, jurisdictional... Co- well, we have one that's called the generic contract for traffic cops, FBI attorneys, etc. Okay, open the file and see
3: what it's titled generic contract Contracts an agreement to faithfully perform certain obligatory
1: fiduciary duties to the benefit of the sovereignty
3: There you
4: go Nice ring to it (laughs) Okay Yeah, I like it
2: So, um and as I mentioned to you, I think it was last week or the week before, if you want to substitute a word, because you had a problem with the word suffrage or supper. Yeah. And endure is a, probably a good one you could substitute. But you want to pick terms that you're comfortable with because that, without changing significantly changing the meaning. You want to pick terms you're comfortable with because you want to be able to walk your talk on this stuff.
4: Yeah, the thing is I don't wanna have to walk my talk. <laughs> I'm well, trying to the whole avoid point. That's, that's, it. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Well that's the whole point of the schedule of fees and charges. Because uh once they get that and they know they've been put on notice, they know it, it is collectible. Um, you know, once you establish that it's a valid debt, um, hell you can sell it to J G Wentworth if you want.
4: Well, that brings up a a, a question that I have. Uh,
1: uh-huh.
4: You're reading uh, my la- mind, aren't you? No,
2: he's laughing at me. Oh. <laughs> JG Wentworth. Oh, you haven't seen the television ads for JG Wentworth?
4: Uh, don't watch TV on TV.
2: Oh, well, when I'm in guesting with somebody, they they have the TV on occasionally. There's ads, and the one that I caught that was very frequent for a while. Anyway was j. G wentworth they buy structured settlements um, in other words they're they're buying your contract they give oh. you up upfront cash for less than the amount of the structured settlement, and then they collect the structured settlement over time, really yeah,
4: I like it
2: they're not well. the only ones they're not the only ones in that business, but that's that's they're the ones that advertise the most heavily. Or they used to be. I don't know what's going on. I haven't seen a television now for two or three years.
4: Yeah, we watch television programs on the computer, so we don't have to watch the ads. But we don't no. watch that much TV.
2: Well, actually, you know, uh, Mark Twain had something to say about that.
4: Oh, what did he say?
2: Um, about television. To... No, 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 no. He was talking about the newspapers. <laughs> um I'm going to have to paraphrase this, but I think he said something along the lines of um, reading the um, advertisements uh, in the newspaper is more informative than reading the news.
4: Huh. Oh. <laughs> wow. Wow. an interesting or, or something like,
2: either that or something like uh, the advertising in the papers are are uh, closer to the truth than what's yeah. in the news.
4: <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs>
4: <laughs> so back to cars. Yes. Um, you said that if they want to tow your car, that you can yeah. say, hey, you move that car one inch and I will charge you with Grand Theft Auto and I will make it stick.
2: Okay. You can only do that if if the car is yours. If it has a state-issued plate on it, you don't hold the title. The state does. Okay. All right? Okay. You can't charge Grand Theft Auto if they're going to tow their own vehicle.
1: Oh. Okay. But if
2: you have plates that say private property, and you can prove that you hold not only the property but the title to it in possession, um, I knew a gal that did that. She was, uh, I don't remember her name now. She used to be a... Cat Stewart for uh, Western Airlines, and uh, they paid, I don't know how she rigged, uh, rigged this up either, but she, they paid her in gold, and she bought a brand new Lincoln uh, car with gold, got the uh, c- uh, certificate of origin on the car, of course she got pulled over for no plates, this was in Montana. And uh, they were going the to tell the car, and she just told them that. She said, you move that car one inch, I'll charge you with Grand Theft Auto. She sh- she showed them the manufacturer's certificate of origin in her hand. She said, and I can make it stick. So the car sat there along the highway for about two months, and then she finally had somebody go pick it up.
4: Huh. Oh, she was hoping they would.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
4: It's an easy way to make some money. (laughs) Well, how do you... um...
2: Now, if they say they're going to arrest you and put the bracelets on you, there's all kinds of ways you can deal with that. But, uh, you know, you can say, well, I don't give you permission to touch my body, so there we are. What are you going to do now? Another one you can say is they're going to put the bracelets on you you just say, hold out your hands, hold out your wrists, and say, please, by all means, I need the money.
4: That sounds like somebody that we've heard before, doesn't it, Dad? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And then it
1: all comes down to collection. Yeah.
4: Right. Right. So, hmm, okay, I'll probably have a follow-up question on that next week.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Next week. The guy won't pay me. Now what do I do? (laughs) Right.
4: Uh, do we need to deregister our car or truck after returning the license plates?
2: Um, you, Does that it make would a be difference? a good i Well, it would be a good idea when you ask for the plates back. You return the registration and ask them to, the, uh, or no, you return the plates and tell them you want the title back, um, and that you are removing the property
3: from the state's asset inventory.
4: And would that be uh would all of that combined be evidence enough to to be able to later at roadside say you you towed my car an inch and I'm going to hit you with grand theft auto?
2: Well, you could do that if you want,
1: but I'll uh, charge you with I'll say hit, they might take that literally.
4: Oh, well, Okay.
2: Yeah. The. Um. um you no, know, the best thing to do, rather than threaten them with that, is just hand them a copy of the um, scheduled fees and charges. You say, "I charge a thousand dollars a minute for violations of my rights." Uh, do you want a contract with me?
4: And that would be in reference to someone threatening to tow your car away.
2: It would be in reference to anything like that. Okay. Anytime they get in your face, you say, oh, you want a contract with me? Here's what I charge.
4: I guess I haven't got the full scope of that schedule of fees and charges yet. That's that's fantastic. Well,
2: you have to understand how they operate under the UCC and the uh, commercial law on that. Um, it's all about the money, and it's all about uh, notice and opportunity. Hmm. Okay? Um, after you've given them notice an opportunity, if they decide they want to contract with you and violate your rights, um, either in person or property, um, that's fine. They've been noticed, you charge $1,000 a minute. And uh, even though you've notified all of the important people, you can note it, you can hand a copy of it, carry a few extra copies in the glove box and hand it to the cop. Say, I charge $1,000 a minute for violation of my rights. You want a contract with me? <laughs>
3: the
2: main thing is, you gotta, you got to act with a certain degree of, not with a chip on your shoulder, not that kind of an attitude, but just complete certainty. Okay? When you come across that way, just complete certainty, um, it intimidates them because they're trying to intimidate you. So let's say that you uh, get your lien
1: and you submit it to their risk management and risk management um, well, pays
2: it. Yeah. See, there's another the process, the commercial process. As I and I this is in the handbooks. I remember putting it in there. Um, you have to give them. Uh, you have to send them a bill. You have to make a, a claim. You have to make a demand for payment. Uh, three consecutive times. So at the end of each month, you send them a bill. And when they don't respond to it, then at the end of that, you give them 10, day, excuse me, ten days grace and you say, uh, this bill is now collectible. The same thing when the banks are done in you
3: and they follow the same process.
4: Okay, so at the end of the 10 days and they haven't paid you,
3: then
2: and what do you, you do? Well, you send him a notice that this bill is now uh, due and
3: payable uh, plus penalties. And you, um, um, Tad, you
2: might want to fill her in on this. Um, the I think the Administrative Procedures Act covers this. How you how you have to do that with the paperwork.
1: Well, so far. I haven't read it all the way
3: through, but it seems like it's mostly for inter government agencies. Tell me one corporation that is not an instrumentality of the state.
1: What I'm saying is that so far, what I've read it's what what agent what one agency is wanting from another,
2: okay, but you're dealing with corporations, I don't care if it's a bank or what it is, okay. And they are instrumentalities of the state.
1: Including the individuals who are acting as that yeah, business. Well, That's right
2: down. That includes the uh, entity, it includes the employees, it includes everybody right down to the janitor. So, we can
1: do the administrative process on the individuals sure. doing
2: business as you blah, go. blah, blah. Or making representations on behalf of.
1: Doing business as and including making representations on behalf
3: of. Right. Okay. Ooh, that's a good one. <laughs>
1: that's a way to get it into federal court.
3: Yeah, and... As I said, if you if
2: you want to make it effective, you've got to make it personal.
1: So my question...
2: If if fiction you... Can't, you know When you think about it, a fiction cannot injure you. Only people can injure you. So my question is that if
1: you get this lien against some individual and you submit it against their risk
2: management, would they lose their job? Um, if you want to include the agency, yes, but if you're going to make it personal, take their house, take their car, take their snowmobile, take whatever they've got. Well, perhaps we should hold a
1: webinar on exactly how to do that. (laughs) Well, (laughs) it goes on every day. It's standard process. It's standard if you're some organization going against an individual, but what about one of us trying to do it to them? That's what we want to know. Yeah, well, your position
3: is are you challenging my authority? <laughs> you don't have any authority here. When you
1: when you oh, violated when you went through that stop sign, you gave authority to us and now we're exercising that authority uh enforcing no. the laws passed by the
2: legislature of the state of Oregon.
3: <laughs>
2: That's not the authority. The authority is the license plate on your vehicle. In other words, the authority is not the act of going through the
3: stop sign. The authority is stuck to your bumper on your car. So you ask the question, am I
1: challenging your authority? Questioning your authority.
2: Right. In other words, you're exercising your rights. You're exercising your authority. That's what rights are statement of authority. I'm
1: just trying to give you, you know, some cop's
2: head response, you know. Well, that's fine. Maybe you can educate him. And if you can't educate him, you'll educate him a different way later on.
1: Well, might as well educate him differently and put some money in my pocket. There you go.
2: That's the whole object of this thing. When I do this stuff, some of it sounds pretty wild. I mean, I've actually done it. I don't do it just for
3: the fun of it. I'm setting these people up. <laughs> I don't do it for the fun of it. I'm setting them up. <laughs> okay.
4: Can I ask a question?
3: No. Oh, you can <laughs> ask.
4: Have... <laughs> oh, now
3: I'm confused. <laughs>
2: you know... That reminds me of going to the grocery store and somebody's saying, uh, do you have this, uh, whatever? And I've turned at them and said, yeah, they got it here, but you can't have any.
3: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
4: well, this is having to do with the vehicle, vehicle code
0: mm-hmm. and
4: talking about uh, something ha- intended for profit. And okay. And uh, my my understanding is that um as a private woman or man right that no matter what I'm doing uh whether I'm getting money for what it is that I'm doing while I'm traveling that that profit is not what I'm going to gain from it
2: Well the other the other back door they try to use, and, and you can get around it, but um, they say that, uh, well, when you uh, purchase gasoline with Federal Reserve notes, you're engaging in commerce. And that's the fuel is what you're burning when you go down the highway.
4: Yeah, but that's a compelled benefit.
2: Of We're course not. it is.
4: We're stuck with it, so...
1: Yeah, of course it is. Well, there's a Supreme Court case that says a compelled
2: benefit is not a benefit. Right.
4: Right. Okay.
2: But Sorry. it still remains you'd have to argue that. But it, the main point is um, it still goes back to the same thing. It's like an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cured. I mean, do you want to get everything set up correctly in the beginning or do you want to argue about it later on? Yeah. Well, now, that's you may why end up, yeah you they <clears throat> one thing I've learned about this system is they will test you at least once to see if you understand what you're doing,
4: and by testing you, do you mean getting you into court
2: well in the court or in the administrative process, they'll test you they'll they'll challenge you to find out if you really understand what you're doing. that's why I say it's so important to be able to walk your talk with this stuff. If you're not prepared to do that, then I I would say uh, don't don't get involved in this stuff.
4: Yeah, but that uh, schedule of fees and charges, having that in,
2: that's just business.
4: <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, but you know it could pay off. So.
2: Yeah, but you know, that's not, that's your attitude about it. It's just it's nothing personal. It's just business. You want a contract right. with me? This is what I charge. Right. You don't want to contract with me. That's fine. That's your choice. That's your right.
4: Yeah. Well, my my partially my attitude is, you know, these these folks are out there, uh, you know, being um, being good little officials. They're <laughs> ignorant, so you know, most of them. So
2: and arrogant. Well, well yeah, no, but the, the
4: ignorant, the arrogance is based on the ignorance.
2: Yeah, there there is some truth in that. The main thing is, is if you notify their superiors, because their superiors are not that way. They know what the game is. Well, you assume. No, they do know what the game is. They're advised by their attorney. It's so like I told you. The executive branch, including all the cops, um, they won't even wipe their butt unless they have an attorney, telling their bar counsel, telling them when, where, and how to do it.
1: Okay. That would be an interesting yeah. conversation.
4: <laughs>
2: <laughs> you think?
4: <laughs> oh,
2: what I just said? Hell, I've said that to a cop's face.
3: Oh. No, the conversation said... on
2: how to wipe a cop's
3: butt.
2: <laughs> oh yeah. No, I've I've said that to law enforcement before. I said you you know you you don't even do this. You uh-huh. won't even uh, wipe your butt unless uh, your counsel tells you when, where, and how to do it.
4: Well, I have a couple of really bottom line, basic questions. Um, one of which is about addresses. About In
2: what? Addresses dresses.
4: And She's how a woman.
1: She... she wants to talk about dresses.
4: No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Tad. <laughs> tisk
2: tisk. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, what's the question?
4: The question is, in volume one you suggested writing CF uh, in front and after your zip code uh, in in order to convey that your use of it is in no way to be taken as consent to or acknowledgement of its validity in law. Do you still recommend it?
2: Well, you—I mean—you can still use it, but what I use now, personally, because it's—it's it's clearer. In other words, I, when I, as time has gone on, I've, I've changed the way I write things so that the average person can understand what's being said. Most people look at CF; they don't know what it stands for. So, even though it's still valid, that you know it means constructive fraud. But.
3: Right.
2: Um what i typically write now is in proximity to federal zone
4: Oh really
2: and then i put quote marks around the zip code What about
4: what about brackets yeah. around around the zip near and
2: brackets You can do that Near um, brackets? The, the problem is that their automatic scanning machines in the postal service sometimes register the brackets or the parentheses as one and it screws up the numbering, and it, your letter could end up anywhere. Um, oh. So if you avoid using brackets or uh, parentheses, that's why I use quote marks, uh, because it does not confuse <laughs> quote marks. How about
4: uh, near, quote marks, zip, quote marks?
2: You could put that. I like to put in, in proximity to um, the zip, that zip code.
4: That's a lot of words so what <laughs> i'm a I'm a busy gal,
2: <laughs> yeah, I live a very busy and productive life too
4: <laughs> <laughs> and then another basic is about in volume two you spoke about um the size of paper used for a different uh for documents in different uh, uh matters
2: right, and they and do acknowledge that because. When I've done uh, lawful documents in eight and a half by thirteen, because it's an oddball size today in their commercial uh, apparatus, they charge you extra to record those kind of documents. Oh, okay. Okay.
4: So, but you still would recommend using eight and a half by thirteen for our notices and our letters to the government?
2: Not necessarily, because the uh, schedule of fees and charges, for example, is pure co- uh, commerce. It's a, it's a commercial document. You can use eight and a half by eleven.
4: Oh.
3: Only lawful documents, like if you're doing a writ um, or
2: some instrument such as that, um, th- that is a lawful document. And as far as I know, the Supreme Court, U.S. Supreme Court rules, still require that. If you're filing a habeas corpus or some such thing as that in the Supreme Court, they want it on eight and a half by thirteen.
4: Oh, interesting. Yeah. Um and also you use uh a, a lot of it seems, a lot of Latin phrases in some of your documents.
3: Uh-huh. And I'm
4: and I'm wondering if if it would be advantageous in any way to just put those Latin phrases into common English.
2: Well, you could if you're trying to educate say you're roadside cop, but um, the one you have to
3: impress is the judge and they do know Latin.
4: And, and what about legalese?
3: Such as?
4: Well, legalese meaning um
1: as henceforth but not before after (laughs) that
2: all that crap um Um, that's not legalese that's political double talk (laughs) uh,
1: (laughs) the the code is filled with it
4: I haven't got an example of legalese uh, at the (laughs) ready so I can't I can't I thought.
2: Oh, you mean you weren't expecting me to challenge you on that?
4: Uh, Yeah, you got (laughs) your nerve.
2: (laughs) Well, I can't answer the question if I don't know what the question is.
4: Oh Okay. Oh, you're a stickler. (laughs) Okay, so I'm gonna say.
1: No. I'm gonna say right now. If anybody else has any questions, hit star
0: eight. They better. Yeah.
4: (laughs) Uh, Okay, I have another question. Someone said i don't know where let's see when sending letters, etc, to government slash corporate entities uh it's recommended that we keep the original and send a copy of it that we certify or verify with our wet ink autograph or signature that it's a true copy of the original. Does that sound correct to you?" <coughs>
2: Now, what I do is I just, you know, the, the copiers have gotten so good these days, you can copy a blue ink signature page and it looks just like the original. So that's why you sign it
1: under something soft, so it makes an impression through the paper.
3: Oh,
2: really? Well, yeah. Um, and that even includes if I put seals on there. You put seals do-
4: on your
1: documents?
2: Sometimes I have my own personal family seal. Um, I have a... Then there's always the notary seal, of course. And then I have, or I used to have, um, I'm looking at getting it back here shortly. Um, I had a special embosser made. You know what an embosser is? Yes. Okay. I had a special embosser made with the original...
3: Great Seal of the United States of America
1: on it.
2: Old Monty of the Goose-Goo family. No. It's the original Great Seal of the United States of America. Oh, okay.
4: Did you personalize that in any way?
2: Nope.
3: But I have used it because I was exercising my authority as one of the sovereign body and
2: and Congress has abandoned the use of that seal. So there's no enabling authority that empowers them to compel me not to or prevent me from doing so. It goes back to the same thing. Are you challenging my authority?
4: Uh, And what kind of documents would you use that on?
2: Mm, I don't know, like reinstatement of the Declaration of Independence, a restatement of the Declaration of Independence which, by the way, I'm going to make that available to uh, Tad. Um, there's three documents. They're basically templates. I put them in that form. Uh, one is a verified solemn recognition of mixed war, uh, which includes... Uh, let's see, i got to open it up here. I forgot what the title is. Verified Solemn Recognition of Mixed War, de facto versus de jure, in parentheses. <coughs> Do you know what mixed war is?
4: No, I was just writing it down to make sure to ask you.
2: Okay, it's in the law dictionaries. Um, uh, Mixed war is where the government is waging war on its own citizens.
4: Yeah, like now, David said. Yeah,
2: so in this case, it's de facto versus de jure, with with statement of treasonable causes and sovereign declaration of outlawry and fair game warrant pursuant to paramount American law. I put out a fair game warrant on some people.
4: And what is a fair game warrant?
3: It means they're fair game to anybody.
4: So if I encountered that person, I could, if I could, I could haul them into somebody?
2: Yeah. Or or you could put them six feet under if you want. Oh. (laughs) And I'm I'd rather author- haul
4: them into somebody, and, if you don't mind. And,
2: and I'm authorizing you to do that with this warrant. Yeah, and we'll see how well that works. Where, yeah, okay.
3: Where are anyway, you recording Well, or he filing said I that?
2: could. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, it just to me. I'll take care of it. <laughs> anyway.
4: Where are you recording or filing that?
2: Um. Generally, what you do is publish it. Oh. That's the best way. Anyway, uh, the other document is restatement of the laws of nature and nature's God, and restatement. I no, that's a reinstatement re-in of the laws, or laws and of nature and nature's God, and restatement of the unanimous declaration and resolves of July 4, AD 1776. All I do is I take the original declaration of independence and bring it up to date.
4: With uh, just a new the, date.
2: No. There's some changing in the wording, but not much, because all of the grievances listed against the uh, King George and the Parliament at that time are applicable today. It doesn't require much reworking. Anyway, um, that's another document. And then the third document, which is probably going to be suitable for a webinar, uh, several webinars, is uh, Declaration of Intent to Separate for causes, which is like an a abbreviated version of the Declaration of Independence, um, and intend to provide new constitutional guards, and following that is, new Constitution of the United States of America. And what I've done here is I've rewritten the United States Constitution, and I've put in, I've plugged
3: all the loopholes, um... So there's no room for abuse of this instrument. Wow. Uh, For example, I'm dropping down to Section 7. This is Article 1. Section 7. Except as in this
2: Constitution expressly provided, neither Congress or the legislative power of any of the several states shall pass any law authorizing the exercise of police power authority without lawful warrant in the absence of actual provable cause. By the way, um, if you read the original document, the original Bill of Rights, it does not say probable cause, it says provable. Oh, The type of, of uh, cursive script at that time, the uh, S's and the F's are very easily confused, as are the B's and the B's. So if you take probable and take the B out and put a V in, if you look at the original document, it is a B. So it's provable cause, and that's a whole different matter. So anyway, which provable cause shall minimally consist of actual criminal causation or manifest intent to commit a crime, an actual and identified victim or manifest intended victim of the criminal act causation, and tangible evidence of an actual injury, loss, or damage to the person property, or secured rights. In other words, what this clause does, it says no more victimless crimes.
3: Oh. <laughs>
2: well that went out the window. And then Section 7-2 is accepted as in this Constitution especially provided neither Congress or the legislative power of any of the several states shall pass any law authorizing the exercise of coercive peacekeeping authority in the absence of manifest breach of the peace consisting of riot or immediate behavior which is unmistakably reckless, menacing, or otherwise actually endangering the person, property, or secured rights. Of another or others. In other words, I'm not giving them any room. There's no discretion in this constitution.
4: And is this constitution uh, uh, specially for you, or is this um,
2: for people? A replacement. In general?
4: No, I mean, uh,
2: I, I mean, I could do it on my own authority, but I'm just I'm an army of one. So what I'm doing is I'm putting this out there. If people want to uh, have a new constitution here's what i'm here's what I'm recommending. There are a number of them um, uh, I'm putting in sections that define certain terms in the document, Good
3: for idea. example,
2: right, in other words, in the original constitution, they use the word citizen, both small c and capital c, mostly capital c, numerous times, but they never define the term Yeah. there's not. The term "citizen" at the federal level was not defined until the Fourteenth Amendment.
4: So, when when the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution were originally written, were they uh, were the the original signers not distinguishing between the two, the capitalized and the uncapitalized words?
2: Well, can, can I well it, has, it has to do with the context in which they were writing it. When they used a capital C, they were referring to a political office. When they used a small c, the uh, in other words, that was a proper noun, title of an office. But small c, um, they were referring to a uh, general state or condition. In other words, it wasn't a proper noun.
1: But so can can any, you if anybody first, else has any questions, hit star eight yeah. on your phone, and I'll call on you. If you got any I, questions, oh, hit star eight. I heard somebody, I heard somebody else say. say. something. Well, they got to hit I, star eight so I can call on them.
3: I'm we might me. Question? I don't know why,
0: but I actually came unmuted. I'm sorry. Well, hit star me eight.
1: Uh, Monty. Hit star okay. eight.
0: Can you, does it
1: register? <laughs> yes, but wait till I call on you. Okay, so Genevieve, do you? One last, one last. Okay, question. one last question. Okay. We okay.
4: <laughs> um, re, you said in uh, volume two, I think it was, when sending the notice to, and I don't even know what notice, but when sending the notice to the Secretary of State to remove your name from the voter registration roll. You suggest using a certificate of mailing rather than certified mail. Right. What's the difference between certificate of mailing and certified mail?
2: Well, uh, a certificate of mailing simply is proof that you mailed it. If it is not returned to you within a, a certain period of time, it is presumed to have been delivered. In other words... You don't, have, you don't know when they received it. It's not like certified mail, where it, you know, that you get notice of when they received it. But that is, in law, That's or in the courts anyway, all you have to be able to prove is that you did mail it and it was not returned to you. So it's presumed it was delivered.
4: Well, how can it be proven that it wasn't returned to me if I'm only using a certificate of mailing?
3: Uh... <sighs>
2: Well, you simply do an affidavit. If it, it comes down to that, you simply do an affidavit that it was never returned to you. An unrecorded affidavit stands. An a- affidavit stands as truth. Okay, great. All right. So that answers your question, Genevieve.
4: Yes, it does, Tad. Thank right, you so thank much. You. And one.
1: thank you
4: again, Monty. You're welcome. Have a fun week.
0: All right. One life to live. You've been. It's an asking <laughs> question. Go for it. Good up, man. How are you? We stay on. Anyone, you can, the last caller can stay on. I uh, would like to. I think uh, she just hung uh, up. I don't hey, believe it. H- hey, can I ask you <laughs> this? Uh, you know, the, have you ever? You look at the file manual for the Federal Government Printing Office, and they and they say that if you write something in italics, that that's the name of a vessel. Names of vessels are to be written in italics, and that's. I think it's rule eight point one zero of the Federal styles manual um, 2010 but my thing is, is 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 that if I sign my name right in let's say I sign it in italics is that letting them know that through my conduct right my signing that I'm using my commercial vessel rather than right.
2: I don't Perfect. quite understand the nature of your question there because um, what do you mean by signing in italics? Signing to me is a cursive uh, signification. Okay. Which, which is neither. Right. Okay? Yeah. Okay. Um, okay, <clears throat> the,
0: um, I'm, okay just, let's say I, I d- took my letters. I'm sorry. and I And instead of writing in handwriting like cursive, I just took the letters and slanted them forward even writing in just regular case, and then, you know, this way, they know I'm using my commercial.
2: Right. As I tell people, there's nothing wrong with admiralty, there's nothing wrong with commercial law, there's nothing wrong with with the UCC. As long as you understand that's what you're dealing with. You don't mix it with constitutional issues. Um, And as long as you understand what you're dealing with, then it's, quite alright. I mean, I do it all the time. Oh. I'll, I'll put my signature on things. Uh, but yes. I will but I will qualify my signature. It's a restricted signature. Okay. And there's various ways you can restrict it. It depends on what you're signing.
3: What if you put void after it? What would happen then? Well,
2: well, it would actually do that. It would void it. So the uh, one of the things that I pointed out to people is how many documents have you ever signed where they had an X in front of the line?
0: I'm sorry, can you repeat the question?
2: How many documents have you signed that had an X in front of the line? I can't recount, but there's probably been a few. Right. Whenever there's an X at the front of the line, the X is the symbol of the crucifixion. And when you look at the Greek symbol, it's P with the X on the sha- on the column. That's referring to the crucifixion. And the crucifixion, the crucifixion was a forgiveness of all the sins.
0: On another level.
2: Is that so, okay? I'm gonna finish that though. So okay. what you do is if you want to put an X in front of your signature, then if you that that document ever comes into question in court or just challenged or whatever, uh or if you're challenged by it, they say, Well this is your signature, they say then you can say, Well it has an X in front of it, they'll say, What do you mean by that? Well um I was signing uh, uh under the authority of uh Jesus Christ. I mean if you got a problem with this document you're going to take it up with him. What if what if you that's just take
1: um what if you just take uh reappearing ink and then just write void over top of it so it reappears later? Um <laughs> that <laughs> that would you know, be
0: hilarious. <laughs> that that
2: would be funny, but that's that's actually a fraud. Uh, I wouldn't go
0: there. I wouldn't go there. <laughs> here's my, here's my question. It's about a state and uh, it's about whether or not an estate is a
3: person that can sue.
0: An estate, mm hmm, is no. an estate. A person that can that has the right to sue.
3: No, it
0: would
2: either be a trustee or an executor or administrator of the estate that would do the suing
0: in the name of the estate. Mm-hmm. Okay, so then why in in this this case law from named Tanner, they said that the estate was not a person, right? That that estate was just a name. That's just a name, basically. In other words, that keeps track of bi- bi- debts and as well as assets of a of a of a decedent, you know, of a decedent or something like that, or an incompetent right. person. So, my my <laughs> question, I guess, would be, if the estate is not capable of suing, and I come in and I say I am yada yada John Doe, or I'm Donaldson, right? And they and right. they say, Hey, Don. Is, Donaldson? And I go, yes, that's me. Well, am I saying I am the estate? Yes. Am I saying I have the capacity to sue? No, because estates don't have that that capacity. That's why they have to have that lawyer in there to represent the estate.
3: Right. right? Um, Uh, A fiction
2: fiction cannot articulate itself.
0: Exactly.
2: A fiction has to have a living person to articulate it.
0: So, how would you would you recommend people come in as administrator then over the over the name instead of from now on? What what about this? Here I'm going to simplify my question. Can I come in and very colorably, for the respect of the the system, say my name is yada yada is Donaldson? I'm now saying it's mine, right? I'm not saying that's me anymore, right?
2: Well, is that's this in, is this in reference to the all caps name?
0: No, no, it's it's in reference to the name, right, the estate. In other words, the thing that keeps track of the debts and the assets for me while I'm alive.
2: Okay, well, here's the thing. The only name that belongs to you is your first name and possibly, if you have a middle name, your middle name. Your last name belongs to your family. It does not belong to you except as a... um,
3: you have an equitable interest in that name on the family name. Well, what if I came in as
0: administrator over my my name, right? And and and, and basically did not allow um, anybody to make a decision. Would I have to get what authority would I need to to hold that claim? Okay,
2: my best recommendation is that um, if there is a some kind of a uh, dispute in progress that prejudices you in that regard, then I would file for declaratory judgment in a probate court. And if it's at the state level, which is where all the property is, then I'd file it into the court of general jurisdiction, uh, which usually handles probate
0: probate. That sounds good. Let me ask you this. What happens if I become the owner instead of the, in other words, administrator is not necessarily the owner. Okay. But so my question would be as administrator, am I not still acting as a, as a citizen? Because especially if the the person who owns the, the estate, the beneficiary is the state itself or the people
2: you you're using a, a number of terms here, which imply to me that you're do- talking about a trust relationship. I'm talking
0: about the state having a beneficial interest in the name because it was created to protect the body politic at large. It wasn't created to protect the individual is what I'm saying. And I was right. wanting to get then, some feedback on Same you.
2: thing. Same, same thing. You just put in for a declaratory judgment of the probate court. Um, state um, either They have a separate probate court or it'll be the court of general jurisdiction with
0: probate division. And, um, we should presume there's no estate because the only time an estate would kick into gear, sir, is when I was deemed incompetent. And if I exhibit conduct of a competent in person that, and I can sue, then I'm definitely not acting like someone incapacitated and, I'm not even saying that I am the estate anymore, so I'm exhibiting that conduct too. What do you think?
3: Well, I what think do you what do you think the purpose of the declaratory judgment is? Injunctive relief. The declaratory judgment
2: Uniform Declaratory Judgments Act is a fairly recent invention by the courts and it's an equitable it's on the equity side of the court, and its purpose is to remove uncertainty and to, by removing that uncertainty, to um, forestall future litigation.
0: Mm, that's excellent. Okay. Well, Okay, so, so here's what I'm saying. If I go and register my name down at the county... If I say, hey, look, I want to register the property. In other words, yes, the estate was created for the benefit of the state, but I'm the one in control of it, so I'm going to go and register it. Now, I know that
2: Go ahead. Okay, based on what you just said, have you read my handbooks? I have not. I suggest you do that because I cover this fairly well. if Well, If you want to take your property off the tax rolls, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that's all outlined in the handbooks. Tad, uh, Tad has copies of the handbooks, um, and uh, the procedure for that is I've
0: already covered. I mean, what is the what is the effect of registering my name? As I'm going to be the owner. Now, wait well, a if minute. If you this register, is, it, you're giving it to them. Weird. Yeah, that's yeah, that's
1: what I'm doing. So right? here's, I'm back here's what I'm going to recommend. It's getting late right now. I want to recommend that you join us a little earlier or next week's talk. Maybe we can go over this.
2: Okay, well, so it has we'll start, to... Really? Okay. Yeah, if it has to do with the all-caps name, that's a fiction that the state created. You
0: did not create that. So well, the decedent... Not, right, it's a decedent because of all-caps, right? But the thing about it is you're there now. You're right there. So how can they say that there's a decedent or even an estate when you're alive? I don't believe that there is an estate unless, of course, it's not being created by you. It's it's their it's their stuff. It's not yours. Therefore, right. is what I'm saying. It's, unless you step in as part of the body politic and then you say, look, I'm part of the. I'm a beneficiary also because I'm here as the people. Well, if you, you want to take that, if you want because, to take that approach, if you want to take that approach, just file for divorce. <laughs> anyway, but I was thinking, you know what, CAFers, this is my, my, here's the climax, you guys, of my input, is that once you establish yourself as a resident, right, with the domicile, you know, basically right, right there in Cal, wherever you're at, California, I mean for me, right, and you do the registration of the birth cert, you're now the administrator, check it out. What are CAFers? CAFers are comprehensive annual financial reports for cities and counties. I'm now, familiar. they give, it's my understanding that they're,
3: hello. hello, what happened, I don't
1: know, but it's getting late, I think we should go ahead and uh, uh, end the call, yeah,
2: it's, uh, oh, we've been on almost two hours, okay. yep. All right. So, seen that long. But. All right, you guys, so you can catch
1: uh copies of this um recording at uh, youhavetheright.com indexed by subject anyway. It's free a talk show, but you can catch it at uh youhavetheright.com. And uh your participation would be appreciated, so let everybody know know about uh what we do here. And Monty, thank you very much and we'll catch you again next week.
2: All
3: right, then.